This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Morales, and I'm so glad to be here with Dr. Edward C. Valandra Wambli Wapaha Hoxila, editor of Colorizing Restorative Justice, Voicing Our Realities, a Living Justice Press book released in June of 2020. Dr. Valandra is Sikanju Fithwana and was born and raised on the Rosebud Sioux Reservation. He has served in the Sikanju Fithunwan Oyate Nation on the Rosebud Sioux Tribal Council as an intertribal bison cooperative, ITBC Board of Directives representative, and as his nation's seven-member constitutional task force. He holds a PhD in American Studies with a concentration in Native Studies in SUNY Buffalo. He has taught at both Native and non-Native colleges and universities and centered his research on the national revitalization of the Ocheti Waxakowin Oyate, people of the seven fires, commonly called the Lakota people, and the development of Native Studies. Dr. Vlandra is founder and research fellow of the Community for the Advancement of Native Studies, CANS, a native government-chartered, research-based, reservation-rooted organization, and has served as an advisor to Living Justice Press on Native understandings of justice and this in application towards restorative justice repair. Colorizing restorative justice consists of stories that have arisen from the lived experiences of a broad range of seasoned, loving restorative justice practitioners of color, mostly women who have fiercely unearthed realities about devastation caused by white practitioners who have unthinkably worked without a racial and social justice consciousness. This book is thus a wake-up call for European-descended restorative justice practitioners as it validates indigenous practitioners and practitioners of color and is enlightening for anyone wishing to explore the intersections of indigeneity, racial justice, and restorative justice. Dr. Valandra, I am so glad to meet with you today and discuss your book, Colorizing Restorative Justice, Voicing Our Realities. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Now, before we delve into restorative colorizing restorative justice, would you mind beginning by saying a few words about yourself, your research, and your connection with colorizing restorative justice, voicing our realities? Okay, well, um, I was born in, and raised in the great uh, historic Sioux Nation. Uh, that's the colonizing term, but uh, we call ourselves the Ocheche Shakamui, people of the seven fires. Myself, I am uh, from one of the fires, a Tituan fire, and um, and of that I am Sichanghu Lakota. Um, again, you know, educated in the in the public school systems, uh, which on our reserves are are quite uh, substandard in terms of uh, 
academic achievement and things like that. But um, yeah, I think I think my journey to uh, to get to restorative justice has been a long one. Um, at times, people would ask um, how I came into it, and uh, uh, my response has been that I, being indigenous, particularly in my homelands, we are born into restorative justice of how we how we relate to each other. It's not always perfect, of course, but uh, the notion of circles, the notion of relationships is constantly there. Kinship systems are constantly forefront. So um, so my my thing is I was born into restorative justices or restorative practices. So though I've been born into it, I guess as a field or as a discipline, I've just come into it in the last 15 to 17 years. Thank you so much. That's very informative. And these lead perfectly into your questions on colorizing restorative justice. So the first question I want to ask is if you could explain to our audience the meaning behind the book's cover, painting by Herman Red Elk, Ihan Thunwana Ocheti Sokawin Oyate's 1963 Buffalo Hide painting of a black war bonnet and its representation of these five themes, indigenous circle action, authenticity, and emergence? Well, um, you know, the, the, the buffalo robe itself is, um, is a traditional way of recording events uh, within our Teoshpai, uh, or the extended family. So back in the day, um, about every extended family had one of these uh, buffalo robes, and they usually... Uh, painted events and so the so the buffalo robe is a is a mnemonic device that we use to record our history so um it was just not one buffalo robe but but several families had them and so they often recorded a significant event um that had happened during that year and so that was part of our oral tradition in terms of recording and remembering and um, so uh, this buffalo robe in, in particular, um, we searched high and low for a cover for the book, and we wanted to um, ensure that it represented the indigenous roots of restorative justice. And we, and we found this uh, Herman Red Elk. Uh, and of course, we had to pay a copyright for it. But again, you know, what, what was striking about that cover, it does represent, um, it, you know, it's circular, but when you, take a, when you take one of our headdresses, which, you know, whites, our most non-natives call a war bonnet, but if you take it and you spread it out, it does necessarily form a circle. And so we thought that was very representative of, you know, restorative practices and really you know again it just reminds people that um circles that are used in restorative justice or restorative practices does have an indigenous uh root to it and of course um the symbolism of the of the headdress you know leaders back in back in the day you know pre-contact and and some contact, I, I think uh, those leaders often 
those those headdresses often represented stability um, and really said something about the person. In contrast to today, leaders today, you have to have money, you have to have connections, you have to have a name. You, there, there's so many ex- external things to define a leader, but how we understood a leader was that person that put the best interest of the people before his or her own. And of course, there were a lot of uh, cultural understandings about that, um, you know, being generous, uh, being humble. Those are the kind of attributes that our leadership uh, had and people look for. So, um, so we thought, we thought that that particular book cover was going to be very symbolic about uh, what we're saying in the, in the book. You know, a lot of agency, a lot of action, um, a lot of grassroots people, practitioners in the trenches. And that's basically what leaders do. They are at ground zero with their, with their community. As this relates to uh, the five parts of the book, um, as they mirror this painting, um, I want to state the five parts. Uh, one, restorative justice, restorative practice challenges and obligations. Two, negotiating restorative justice and practice as professionals of color, POC. Three, POC experiences of restorative justice, restorative practice, and circle work. And four, restorative lessons from within the community. And five, last, a call to settlers and restorative justice. Um, is there more that um, you could state on, on this painting as it relates to these five parts and the contributors who were chosen to write in each part? Oh, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent question, and it's very substantive, too. Um, we need about a week to really get through that. But, um, you know, the, the, thing about, the thing about the people that, that have... Um, contributed to the book there was a there was a time that we were wondering uh, how to go about this we knew we wanted to have people of color and indigenous people um, come forward and step forward so we had put a call out um, for colorizing restorative justice and we weren't sure what kind of response we would get back to that and so we so we we put out the call uh for um articles or essays and i think that was in 2017 in the fall of 2017 uh and we held our breath we we put the call out we waited and we about 64 abstracts came in and we were really shocked and surprised, but also delighted by that kind of response. And so then of course we really had to um, sit down. uh, And that was a collective effort. Uh, uh, I organized a a committee. We went through that process and it was very difficult, but we ended up with, these 20 authors to then contribute to the book. So, so that was one of the really, um, I think, inspiring things for, 
for me as the editor of the book that we had such a great response, more than we expected. And then we um, settled on these on these 20 authors. And then we began the process. And, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of good abstracts that came in, you know, these were abstracts that were submitted initially and we went through them. And then we, we went through the selection process and it was by no means easy, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, there was just some really, really good abstracts, but we went through it and uh, we ended up with these um, 20 authors. And of course, we, we went through the manuscript process. We, we copy edited it. We made suggestions. It was a back and forth process. And when we talk about how we um, did this, uh, I made a commitment, and LJP uh, agreed with this. Um, we, we wanted to reach out to the contributors. So we had a, a, a very nice friend of mine. Uh, his name is Alex Goff. He organized several Zoom sessions where the contributors would get together, and we would just talk, you know, about what was going on in our life and we wanted to build that kind of community. So one of the really nice aspects of this project was to go ahead and engage our contributors, you know, not just receive their articles and and do the edits and send them back, but we wanted to know what was going on in each other's lives. Some people experienced loved one passing away, others experienced, you know, becoming parents, others experience transition. So this group of 20, we would meet and we would, you know, we couldn't all meet at once, but those that could attend, and it varied from, uh, you know, Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting, but it was really good to just hear what their journeys were uh, while they were writing their articles. And so I, th- so I think those five areas that we, Having a table of contents, and plus what what the um, what the cover really represented was how do you make community, and that was critical to us in terms of circles. For us, circles is is core. The core thing about the circles is the relationships that we established, and we have continued with the with with this process. Although the book has been done, we still talk. We try to get together. Um, and there's been some really interesting things that have come out of that. Some of the contributors have, um, in, you know, started their own little webinar series or have invited other contributors from the book to hold a webinar on the book itself. So there's been some really exciting um, developments as a result of building this community as well as, as publishing the book. Thank you. That's um, very informative to hear. And moving on to the introduction, I wanted to focus on the statement uh, that was made in the introduction, but encompasses the whole. So from a love of deeper than most whites can imagine. As authors of color, we are taking the risk to share openly and honestly what we have experienced while working in restorative justice. So here, to whom here might we define as white and how might this categorization intertwine itself and or set apart uh, from other provided terms such as settler, apologist, and ally? Okay, well, you know, 
So that that statement has really caught the attention of a lot of people, um, and it's been commented on uh, because it 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 comes almost in the first part of the of the book in, in the introduction, and I just wanted to make sure and make clear that that the articles in this book are, are just not stories about being co-opted and some of the problems that we face, but that these contributors, you know, they, they come from a place of love and toward a place of love. And to say that um, deeper than most whites can imagine, because communities of color of indigenous people have been at the receiving end of colonization, oppression, racism. And that experience is something we all have. Though we're all unique in our communities, our, all communities are, are unique, we do, we do have that common sense of oppression and experience of oppression in particular. And yet when you hear things about restorative justice, like on undoing the harms as a result of wrongdoing, that can only come from a place of love, toward a place of love. And so it was important to put that in there to remind people that as you read this particular book, that is where the contributors are coming from. And the risk, of course, is there because every one of us has written in such a way that we exp- we have this vulnerability as a result of that exposure. And I really have to, again, say that um, the contributors are really speaking from experience and the relationships with, with um, white people and, and how that how that impacts us as individuals, how it impacts us as communities, and in my particular case, how that impacts us as a nation, an indigenous nation. So, so, so it was really um, important to recognize that, you know, coming from a place of love toward a place of love involves risk, involves vulnerabilities, and I really have to say these authors have really given themselves that, that exposure because I am sure it's going to generate a lot of discussion, um, good and bad. And I think that's fine. I think that discussion has, ha- has, has to happen, uh, particularly in the timing of this book. I mean, my gosh, you know, this was a three-year project. And it was a lot of back and forth, you know. Um, you know, when you edit a book with as many as twenty contributors, it 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 is it is a process, and and you can set deadlines and you can um, really talk, but but the process was organic, and and people moved toward completing their manuscripts and getting them in. But I think. The timing of this book is almost, um, it, it's phenomenal. I, I mean, it, it, it came at a time and it was published at a time when things really started heating up or is heating up in the United States. And so this is one 
of many voices that's out there now and talking about, you know, racism, how it manifests, being co-opted in that process. So I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by how uh, the timing of the book came out um, and coincided with a lot of the events that we're uh, seeing uh, and experiencing in the United States. And it's not over yet either. I, I'd hate to say that, but you know, things are going to really um, demand that people step into those roles of doing restorative justice or restorative practices. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And as we move on, could you speak more on the decolonization of restorative practices and restorative justice as discussed in chapter two by Barbara Sherrod and called out in part two and the need for learning from professionals of color, especially in Kansas states, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. You know, um, when we're talking about, you know, decolonization is, is really a, a word that has um, gotten some traction um, in the United States. And, and you know, so, so I think when we talk about decolonization, um, people have to reorient their compasses a little bit because you know, as speaking as an indigenous person, we, we are still being colonized. And I use the term settler quite a bit. And um, I think when we talked to, you know, the, one of the things that, that has um, caught my attention is that what is, what is really, what is decolonization in a lot of ways? What does that really mean? And what does that look like? So again, as an indigenous person, we are we are still colonized by settlers. It's called settler colonialism, and and for us uh, to decolonize, you know, um, and I think this is true for people of color in so many different ways and so many different manifestations. In order to decolonize, what what harms have to be undone? As a result of wrongdoing, so so that's so that's out there. And the thing that I uh, got most from uh, Barbara Sherrod's um, article, and it was good. But I do recall, you know, she talked about um, co-powering circles, like we, like how does that look so that Indigenous people and people of color can equally share that burden. Of, of talking about the harms and trying to undo those harms as a result of wrongdoing. And I, and I think what, what I get from that article is that me as an indigenous person, I need to listen to my black brothers and sisters' stories. They need to listen 
to mine. I need to listen to the Latinx brothers and sisters stories. And we have to listen to all these stories without any kind of mediation in terms of just sitting in those circles and listening. And I, and I think that begins the, the building process of relationships. I think people of color and indigenous people, like I say, we're unique communities, but we all experience depression. And we need to hear those stories. And we need to really find out what are those commonalities that we share, as well as those differences. And I think that becomes the exciting part of uh, what Barbara was talking about in her book about co-powering circles, like how do we come into this and recognize each other's, uh, the harms that have been committed, uh, you know, through white supremacy, through settler uh, colonization. Those discussions really need to happen. I, when I, when we were doing the book and we did have our Zoom sessions, I always felt energized, and I'm sure the other contributors did too. We always felt energized and affirmed so that I, I think that part of the decolonization process of who we are as, as individuals and as peoples and, and, and what we went through. And it's not so much commiserating, but we also see the value and the strength that each of our communities have. And, and, I, and that, to me, is part of what decolonization is. We learn so much from each other. Um, you know, beyond just what we read in, let's say, uh, Black Studies or uh, um, Asian American Studies, Latinx Studies, and all these different kind of areas, uh, I think to see the human element is such a, is such a uh, empowering kind of relationship or dialogue that you have. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I'm sure our listeners will, will agree with, when you get people of color together, there is so much humor that goes on. And, and that, and humor is our way of of showing how much human we are and that despite what we've experienced in terms of oppression, the humor we have is the thing that really helps us with our struggles and really helps bridge um, our communities together. I, I mean, I, I enjoy, I enjoy getting with the, uh, with the uh, contributors. And I think this is a general, a general understanding that uh, our humor is 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 one of those signatures that we have, and you know, and our circles could probably use a lot more humor. To be honest with you, it's a way of um, showing um, that despite despite the oppression we have, we we still can laugh about things, or we can still take joy in some of the things that happen in our community. I mean. So, yeah. And focusing on part five in regard to words on harm that is being done to trivializing indigenous culture and sports mascots and native nations names to military hardware. Could you provide additional insight into this section and elsewhere in regard to the harm 
done in normalizing settler violence against indigenous communities? Okay, so so um, when I when I was um, doing my my chapter, I talked about settlers and restorative justice, and one of the things, one of the challenges I put out there was that as an indigenous person who sits in who who would sit in a circle um, with settlers, for example. I think the challenge that that I put out there is this. If restorative justice is about undoing harms as a result of wrongdoing, what do, what do we do about the first harm? And that's what I call it, the first harm. This, this historic and ongoing harm of land theft and genocide. As an indigenous, as an indigenous person sitting in circle with settlers, and while they're trying to undo harms, I, my question is, what about the first harm? What about that very first harm? And I would, and I, and I propose that if we don't deal with this first harm, then what is, what is the value or the validity of restorative justice. I mean, I, I mentioned in the, in the book that, you know, maybe as people, as parents, we can tell our children that stealing is wrong, but yet what about a whole continent that was stolen? I, I think that's, that's, the, that's the introspection that we have to do uh, one more in these circles with settlers. Like, how can you talk about undoing harms when you when you stolen native land? And today, I mean, this is not a historic thing. This is ongoing today, and genocide, which is ongoing today. Look at look at the disparities we have in the COVID nineteen epidemic. Who's getting treated? Who's got access? So those are the things that we have to look at. And then, you know, my black brothers and sisters, what about the theft of their labor, the theft of their bodies? I mean, we see that playing out in contemporary and 21st century uh, U.S. And so those are the questions we really have to drill down and say, if we don't address those initial harms, then what are we doing with restorative justice? And I think that becomes a very core philosophical uh, question for everyone in the U.S. Because those two harms have led to so many other harms. And, and it's not just historic. It is still ongoing. And so we really have to talk about that. And what we see happening in, in the U.S. today, I think, is a manifestation of not having those two harms addressed. Um, maybe just one other thing about um, the trivializing of indigenous culture. I know the, the Washington Redskins had decided to to change their name uh, from Redskins to, um, I guess, so far the Washington football team. But those mascots are, I think, are indicative of the trivialization of indigenous 
cultures, norms, values, and practices. And of course, the naming of, of items like um, military hardware after indigenous nations, Tomahawk cruise missile, or the um, Apache helicopter, those are those those are saying something about indigenous peoples being perhaps um, hostile. I mean, that's one of the things that that comes to mind, and uh, and and of course, having mascots. You know, when you're able to take a, a, a people, and this happened in in uh, in uh, in Germany uh, under Hitler's uh, regime, uh, when you're able to uh, trivialize a people in such a way and defame them in such a way, you expose them in a way that makes them very vulnerable. So it, so it wouldn't be hard then to say, well, we dehumanize indigenous peoples through mascots and, and, and other names uh, and labeling them so that, so then that their culture means nothing. We've trivialized it to a point where who they are as human beings is not important. And then we can almost do anything we want with them. So there's a dehumanizing effect to trivializing indigenous peoples that way. Um, so that's, so that's what I, so that's one of the things that I think we need to talk about. Um, and, and those discussions are happening, I guess, in today's climate, people are starting to ask those questions and, and rethink what it means, you know, statues are coming down of the Confederacy and people are really rethinking um, some of the most cherished icons that, that they've embraced. And, and so we're in this, uh, one would call it a, a, a cultural war, trying to understand what the narratives are, what the dominant narrative is. So, um, And so I think... Um, Having having this discussion on mascots and other things is 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 a good is a good thing. It's difficult. It's perhaps painful, but it's a good thing. Thank you. And um, is there anything that you could speak further on um, uh, to practitioners, teachers, families, and communities in utilizing uh, colorizing restorative justice chapter questions and activities to work to heal the wound of the first harm. Um, is there more that you could provide on that or that you would like to say on that? Well, that's, um, it, you know, one of the things when we were uh, designing the book, um, to give it, to give the book some legs, uh, we just didn't want uh, people to submit articles uh, We've asked that in the call that they ask, they put discussion questions in, they put activities in, um, they put resources in because we want to, I felt that we needed to have this book uh, just not sit on a shelf, but, but actually become somewhat of a field manual so that although people read the, uh, the contributors' essays, there's things in the back that can help them and questions that they can utilize to, to get a start. And maybe some of these questions would be used in circles. Um, so, so we want it, that to happen. And I, and I 
And I think because we've done that, that book does have, I think, a very practical part of part to it, other than just reading um, the articles themselves. Um, we've given them. Um, you know, you read the activities and the questions. I, I think those are are things that are really going to give the book a lot of staying power, um, and, and we designed it that way. And I think, um, you know, when we talk about the the, the practitioners, especially the people of color, um, one of the one of the things that we did in a call was to say, look, you know, um, where, where's, where's the restorative justice movement now? What has been your experience in restorative justice? And there's issues of being co-opted that was talked about. Um, and just being able to articulate our experiences in, in restorative justice, I think, is um, it's obviously going to lead to further discussions, and and, and perhaps even disagreements about uh, what what was said in the book. I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm I'm sure, um, and it's been my experience uh, since the book has has come out, and prior to that when I talk about like settler colonialism that, for example, the logic of settler colonialism is the elimination, the logic of elimination. And I think a lot of settlers become unsettled when they hear that. Like, it's, it's structural and it's systemic. And it is so, um, it is so um, embedded and so normalized, people don't even think about it. Uh, I'll just give you one example that a, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. K. Holmes, uh, had a really good exercise. And it's, it's, it's an exercise that I think really brings home the point of why this, why this book is important. Um, the exercise involves telling, asking people, what is the first thing they do, they do in the morning when they get out of bed. And when you ask that question of people in a circle or in a group, you're going to get answers like, well, um, I make coffee. Well, I go running. I read. I meditate. But the response to that is, well, I really know, I, I exactly know what what you settlers do in the morning. The first thing you do when you get out of bed is you step on stolen native land. That's the first thing you do. And the reaction is angst. The reaction is denial. The reaction is, well, my parents came in 1975 you know, and not, you know, 1775. And so that question, then when you think about that question and drill down. Yeah, the first thing you do as settlers, the first thing you do in the morning when you get out of bed is you step on stolen native land. The fact that they don't even think about that tells us how normalized the violence has been against indigenous peoples. And one of the things that I had asked about in the book is this talking piece. 
Um, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but I do have, I did offer something for restorative justice in terms of the talking piece. And maybe that's one way to remind settlers that we are still the owners of this land, regardless of what anyone says, particularly American history, white history, this land is stolen. It was, there, is, there was and is genocide committed. And that exists in the 21st century. And it's been so normalized, people don't even think about it. And so that one question is, is, is a way of, of getting people to understand how, how pervasive settler violence has been and structured into institutions and ways of thinking that it, people don't even think about it. You know, genocide is normalized against indigenous peoples. So those are hard discussions to have. And I, I talk about that in, in my chapter about uh, settlers being in restorative justice. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a call to action. Thank you so much, Dr. Valandra. I really appreciated um, this in-depth look into colorizing restorative justice, voicing our realities. It's been very informative and um, there is a lot to learn from this book and I highly recommend it to our audience and educators. Um, and before we take any more of your time, might you provide our audience with a bit of what you're currently researching, working on at this time, anything um, further that we could know? Well, um, <clears throat> I've, I've been looking at a couple of things. Um, one is um, I, have, I have a book project that's been ongoing for quite some time, and it has to deal with... Um, the state of South Dakota and my people uh, back in 1964 when the state of South Dakota literally tried to dismantle and, and terminate indigenous governance. Um, we stopped that process, but that story has never been told. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that I want to do is, is tell that story. You know, um, we're a, we're a, in terms of numbers, we're a small population in the state of South Dakota. Um, and at that time in the 60s, you know, the state legislature was all white. Uh, South Dakota has been a Republican state since its inception. So there's very conservative uh, white settlers there. And there was a movement to just dismantle our native governance. And we stopped that. Uh, we were outsourced, um, outnumbered, but we were able to to stop that um, uh, takeover. And I, that's a project I've been working on for quite some time. Um, and I do, would like to finish. So that's one. I've also spent uh, four years in a in K twelve education, Native education as an administrator. And those four years have been, what an experience. I, I want to write about Native educational leadership and base that upon my experience because I do see a lot of internalized colonization going on uh, within my own nation. And, and that's systemic and structural. And we participate in it. 
to in a way that damages our children in ways that damages people that work in these um in these native schools particularly in my homeland and the toxicity of, of that colonization gets played out on a lateral level and so um I, I want to really talk about that because I think it's important for why the state of education is the way it is in our homelands. I mean, we can, we can have all kinds of different um, um, solutions, but unless we actually address what it is we're doing as Lakota people and adopting these westernized systems, the evidence is there. Our children struggle there's an educational disparity and um and even rethinking the whole idea of 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 education itself um so so those are just a couple of things that i'm looking at and then of course being with the living justice press we're um maybe looking at doing a colorizing restorative justice series i'm, I'm not saying that's what we'll do but we're thinking about that and we're always looking for um, manuscripts from uh, communities of color, indigenous people that talk about restorative justice in a way that um, we feel is edgy, that we feel is, um, you know, comes from what, from a from a a lens of experience, and so that so those are a couple of things that I at least I'm working on. It keeps me busy. Thank you. And I know a lot of uh, our audience will be very interested in contacting you and uh, finding more about that. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Valandra Wanhible Wahaha Hoxila, for being on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and for providing our audience wisdom on colorizing restorative justice, voicing our realities. I've really enjoyed our time. Me too. I've, uh, I really want to thank you for. Um... You know, the listening audience doesn't realize, but we've been trying to connect for a while, only because of the fires out in California. So um, it's been such a pleasure, you know, and, and this is the first interview that I've done with, with respect to colorizing restorative justice. So um, <clears throat> I was a bit nervous and, and I, you know, a play on words here. I don't know if I've done justice to my contributors, but they're a very uh, loving and understanding group of people. So, um, yeah, um, it, it, it's been a really good journey for me as the editor, and then I think for the contributors. And, and I really appreciate you having me on. I, I'm thankful, very thankful. <laughs>